you have an inquisitive mind? Where do you go for answers? Imagine if the natural world held an answer to every question. Welcome to the Flowerhood Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Frankfurt. I'm on an orchard growing avocados and there's something going on. The more time I spend in nature, the more I learn about myself. Is it possible that until we connect with nature, we never truly flourish in our relationships, community, businesses or health? Oh boy, this is no ordinary gardening podcast. Join me at my kitchen table for wide and varied conversations with old and new friends from around the world. I'll be asking questions on how they connect with nature, what the research shows us, and look for ways we can incorporate these learnings into our lives. Let's get started. Kia ora. Hi, how are you? Hey, and thanks for joining me again on the Flowerhood Podcast. It's the start of November, and here in New Zealand, the days are getting warmer. The grass is growing at a rate of knots, and the blossom is out. My wisteria, it's almost finished, showing off its hanging blue petals, and the roses are blooming. And this is the time when... Either you thank yourself for doing the winter pruning or you look wistfully at an out-of-control tree or bush and wish you had invested that time over winter into shaping it. So I'm currently picking bunches of freesias, one of my favourite flowers, and admiring rolling mounds of flowering lavender. I have a number of varieties at the orchard, a very impressive deep pink called the princess and then the traditional lavender major with its long plump purple flower heads. It's grown so well over the years and I kind of use it as a hedge but it's just that beautiful aroma that comes off it that's just such a joy. And for a contrast I've got the Hibcote Blue which is named after one of England's finest gardens with the slimmest of spheres and an aromatic, deep, kind of purpley blue colour. And that sits under my old-fashioned climbing roses. And then my latest lavender, which I put in uh, just before winter, is, I think it's actually called something like Ghostly Princess. And it's just the palest, palest pink. It's almost white in colour. And it's, it's out in flower too, so I'm pretty excited about that. And this year, I will swear that I will keep them watered throughout summer so that they carry on their kind of impressive display. The greatest threat I probably have to my lavender is my kitten, Braveheart. So he's taken to running from a distance, chasing bees. The bees are usually all over the lavender. And then what he does is he kind of launches himself in this big belly flop into the middle of the plant and breaks and bends all the branches as he lands. His human mother is not impressed. And fortunately, at this present moment, he's decided to pick on just one of my mounds. So I'm living with carnage, which I can live with on one, as long as he doesn't do it to all of them. So it's kind of easy to feel poetic in springtime. 
don't know if you feel that way. I, I always do. There's all this new growth around and a feeling of optimism. The ground's warming up. It's time for new beginnings. And for me, I was thinking this week about those books that I read as a child and how they formed my, my own views. The words, the ideas, the dreams and the understanding that I have of nature. So I wonder what the books were that influenced you as a child. Were they of foreign places, lush green jungles, or or were they explorations of mud flats or waterways? Did they have tree houses? Were they manicured lawns or were they wild places? I was thinking about the joy that we had as a family reading Little House series, which I think is about eight books written by Laura Ingalls Wilder. The third and most well-known being Little House on the Prairie. And these books were based on the author's life and they started in the big woods of Wisconsin and travelled by covered wagon to the prairie. And the stories are a glimpse into life on the American frontier. And there's something really heartwarming when you think that children all over the world, yes, and even here in New Zealand, read these beautifully written books. In fact, I kind of devoured them. I remember getting them out of the public library and then reading till late under the covers with my torch. Learning about snowy woods, bears, which we don't have in New Zealand, prairie fires. And then also, there was also sort of tragedy. There was like the near starvation that happened on those great plains of America. There was starvation. I shouldn't really say it was near. These were those kind of stories of homesteading. They shaped my romantic idea of of American farms being models of self-sufficiency, but also of great hardship for many. So Little House in the Big Woods, I thought I'd read a little excerpt from, from the first one. Once upon a time, 60 years ago, a little girl lived in the big woods of Wisconsin in a little grey house made of logs. The great dark trees of the big woods stood all around the house and beyond them were other trees and beyond them were more trees. As far as a man could go to the north in a day, or a week, or a whole month, there was nothing but woods. There were no houses. There were no roads. There were no people. There were only trees and wild animals who had their homes among them. Wolves lived in the big woods, and bears and huge wildcats, muskrats and mink and otter lived by the streams. Foxes had dens in the hills, and deer roamed everywhere. To the east of the little house, log house, and to the west there were miles upon miles of trees and only a few little log houses scattered far apart in the edge of the big woods. So far as the little girl could see there was only the one little house where she lived with her father and mother, her sister Mary and her baby sister Carrie. A wagon track ran before the house, turning and twisting out of sight in the woods where the wild animals lived, but the little girl did not know where it went, nor what might be at the end of it. 
I think it's just so beautifully written. And that's a world that I had no knowledge of as a child, a world of, of woods where there were bear and otter. But I could imagine that in my brain. And then it goes on. Pa and Ma and Mary and Laura and baby Carrie left their little house in the big woods of Wisconsin. They drove away and left it lonely and empty in the clearing among the big trees. And they never saw that little house again. They were going to the Indian country. Pa said there were too many people in the big woods now. Quite often, Laura heard the ringing thud of an axe, which was not Pa's axe, or the echo of a shot that did not come from his gun. The path that went by the little house had become a road. Almost every day, Laura and Mary stopped their playing and stared in surprise at a wagon slowly creaking by on that road. Wild animals would not stay in a country where there were so many people. Pa did not like to stay either. He liked a country where the wild animals lived without being afraid. He liked to see the little fawns and their mothers looking at him from the shadowy woods and the fat, lazy bears eating berries in the wild berry patches. In the long winter evenings, he talked to Ma about the western country. In the west, the land was level and there were no trees. The grass grew thick and high. There were wild animals wandered and fed as they were in a pasture that stretched much farther than a man could see and there were no settlers. Only Indians lived there. So doesn't that sort of make you imagine how it would feel as a child to to leave those woods and to head out, head out to this this new adventure, this this new exploration of another another part of your country. And then in contrast, another one of my very much loved books focused on the turn of the century in Yorkshire, England. And it was the story of a 10-year-old girl, Mary Lennox, born in British India, whose parents died from cholera. And she was sent to England to live with her wealthy hunchback uncle, Archibald Craven, in an isolated manner. And she was described as the sort of sulky, sullen child, quite contrary. She'd been spoilt by servants. But in reality, I say that she was dealing the best she could. Really, with neglect and loss. So The Secret Garden was written by Frances Hodgson Burnett and was first published in 1911. And the story is about nature. And this time, the healing properties of connecting to nature and it's also a story about neglect and how, like a garden, the human spirit can wither and die. So the hidden garden, it, it mirrors what's kind of happening in the lives of Mary and also her cousin, who's a boy about the same age as her, bed-bound in the house, hidden away. She doesn't even know about him to start off with. And he has these tantrums and 
this from frustration and this kind of learned helplessness that spills over into his life. But then she finds the secret garden and tends it and loves it. And under the guide of a local boy who holds nature very dear to him, she has this help and this guidance. And it's like Little House on the Prairie. It's a story of discovery, but it's just in a different way. And here's an excerpt of of when Mary first discovers the garden. So she's already made friends with a robin, and the robin has helped her unearth a, a key. And at this point, she's been given a skipping rope because I think basically because she looks pretty unhealthy and she's kind of, um, they want to get some colour into her cheeks and things. So Mary skipped round all the gardens and round the orchard, resting every few minutes. At length, she went to her own special walk and made up her mind to try if she could skip the whole length of it. It was a good long skip and she began slowly but before she had gone halfway down the path she was so hot and breathless that she was obliged to stop. She did not mind much because she had already counted up to 30. She stopped with a little laugh of pleasure and there lo and behold was the robin swaying on a long branch of ivy. He had followed her and he greeted her with a chirp. As Mary had skipped towards him, she felt something heavy in her pocket strike against her at each jump. And when she saw the robin, she laughed again. You showed me where the key was yesterday, she said. You ought to show me the door today, but I don't believe you know. The robin flew from his swinging spray of ivy to the top of the wall, and he opened his beak and sang a loud, lovely trill merely to show off. Nothing in the world is quite as adorably lovely as a robin when he shows off, and they are nearly always doing it. Mary Lennox had heard a great deal about magic in her Ayah's stories, and she always said that what happened almost at that moment was magic. One of the nice little gusts of wind rushed down the walk, and it was stronger one than the rest. It was strong enough to wave the branches of the trees, and it was more than strong enough to sway the trailing sprays of untrimmed ivy hanging from the wall. Mary had stepped close to the robin, and suddenly the gust of wind swung aside some loose ivy trails, And more suddenly still, she jumped towards it and caught it in her hand. This she did because she had seen something under it, a round knob, which had been covered by the leaves hanging over it. It was the knob of a door. She put her hands under the leaves and began to pull and push them aside. Thick as the ivy hung, it nearly all was a loose and swinging curtain though some had crept over wood and iron. Mary's heart began to thump and her hands to shake a little in her delight and excitement. The robin kept singing and twittering away and tilting his head on one side as if he were as excited as she was. What was this under her hands which was square and made of iron and which her fingers found a hole in? It was the lock 
of the door, which had been closed for ten years, and she put her hand in her pocket, drew out the key, and found it fitted the keyhole. She put the key in and turned it. It took two hands to do it, but it did turn. And then she took a long breath and looked behind her up the long walk to see if anyone was coming. No one was coming. No one ever did come, it seemed. And she took another long breath because she could not help it. And she held back the swinging curtain of ivy and pushed back the door, which opened slowly, slowly. Then she slipped through it and shut it behind her and stood with her back against it, looking about her and breathing quite fast with excitement and wonder and delight. She was standing inside the secret garden. It was the sweetest, most mysterious looking place anyone could imagine. The high walls which shut it in were covered with the leafless stems of climbing roses, which were so thick that they were matted together. Mary Lennox knew they were roses because she had seen so many great roses in India. All the ground was covered with grass of a wintry brown, and out of it grew clumps of bushes, which were surely rose bushes if they were alive. There were numbers of standard roses which had spread their branches so wide that they were like little trees. There were other trees in the garden and one of the things which made the place look strangest and loveliest was that climbing roses had run all over them and swung down long tendrils which made light swaying curtains. And here and there they had caught at each other or at a far-reaching branch, and had crept from one tree to another and made lovely bridges of themselves. There were neither leaves nor roses on them now, and Mary did not know whether they were dead or alive, but their thin grey or brown branches and sprays looked like a sort of hazy mantle, spreading over everything, walls and trees, and even brown grass, where there had fallen from their fastenings and run along the ground. It was this hazy tangle from tree to tree which made it all look so mysterious. Mary had thought it must be different from other gardens which had not been left all by themselves so long and indeed it was different from any other place she had ever seen in her life. How still it is, she whispered, how still Then she waited a moment and listened at the stillness. The robin who had flown to his treetop was still as all the rest. He did not even flutter his wings. He sat without stirring and looked at Mary. No wonder it is still, she whispered again. I am the first person who has spoken in here for ten years. She moved away from the door, stepping as softly as if she were afraid of wakening someone. She was glad that there was grass under her feet and that her steps made no sounds. She walked under one of the fairy-like grey arches between the trees and looked up at the sprays and tendrils which formed them. I wonder if they're all quite dead, she said. 
is it all a quite dead garden? I wish it wasn't. If she had been Ben Weatherstaff, she could have told whether the wood was alive by looking at it. But she could only see that there were only grey or brown sprays and branches and none showed any signs of even a tiny leaf bud anywhere. She was inside the wonderful garden and she could come through the door under the ivy any time and she felt as if she had found a world all her own. The sun was shining inside the four walls and the high arch of blue sky over this particular piece of Misselthwaite seemed even more brilliant and soft than it was over the moor. The robin flew down from his treetop and hopped about or flew after her from one bush to the other. He chirped a good deal and had a very busy air as if he was showing her things. Everything was strange and silent and she seemed to be hundreds of miles away from any one. But somehow she did not feel lonely at all. At that trouble, and all that troubled her, was her wish that she knew whether all the roses were dead, or if perhaps some of them had lived, and might put out leaves and buds as the weather got warmer. She did not want it to be a quite dead garden. If it were a quite alive garden, How wonderful it would be, and what thousands of roses would grow on every side. Her skipping rope had hung over her arm when she came in, and after she had walked about for a while, she thought she would skip round the whole garden, stopping when she wanted to look at things. There seemed to have been grass paths here and there in one or two corners, There were alcoves of evergreen with stone seats or tall moss-covered flower urns in them. As she came near the second of these alcoves, she stopped skipping. There had once been a flower bed in it, and she thought she saw something sticking out of the black earth, some sharp little pale green points. She remembered what Ben Weatherstaff had said, and she knelt down to look at them. Yes, They are tiny growing things and they might be crocuses or snowdrops or daffodils, she whispered. She bent very close to them and sniffed the fresh scent of the damp earth. She liked it very much. Perhaps there are some other ones coming up in other places, she said. I will go over the garden and look. She did not skip but walked. She went slowly and kept her eyes on the ground. She looked in the old border beds and among the grass, and after she had gone round trying to miss nothing, she had found ever so many more sharp, pale, green points, and she had become quite excited again. It isn't quite a dead garden, she cried out softly to herself. Even if the roses are dead, there are other things alive. The wide open spaces of America and versus the contained gardens of England. But at the very heart of all of this is nature. It's there to show and to lead, to follow, to delight and teach us about 
how we tend, nourish, care for our environment and for ourselves. Nature shows us how strong our human spirit really is. So uh, I hope you kind of enjoyed hearing two short pieces from two very different books, which were very special to me in my childhood. And I know that those of you up there in the Northern Hemisphere at the moment, you're heading into winter. And remember, there will always be spring. Winter's on its way, or perhaps it's already arrived where you are. You've already had those first flutters of snow. The temperatures have dropped. And I challenge you to look for the small things, the small things that delight. And wait in anticipation for those sharp, pale green points which will soon be pushing through. And for us here in the Southern Hemisphere, step outside, we'll take our shoes off, we'll recharge on the grass, and we'll breathe in warm summer days. Thanks for joining me. I'll see you next week. My heartfelt thanks for listening all the way to the end of this Flowerhood podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Please subscribe to the show, like and review it on your favourite player. Be part of the greater Flowerhood community. Join the Flowerhood Facebook group and find show notes and information at flowerhood.com. I can't wait to share the next episode. Until then, hey, why not stop and smell the roses?